Hi, folks. Thanks for joining us today for our Safety and Health Magazine webcast on fall prevention, sponsored by JJ Keller. We are going to give everyone just a moment or two to get settled in today, and we appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Hi folks, thanks again for joining us today for the JJ Keller webinar. We're gonna get started in just a moment here. We're gonna let all our audience members get settled in for just a minute and we'll start briefly. Thank you. Hello everyone and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Fall Prevention, Best Practices for the Three Main Types of Hazards, sponsored by JJ Keller. My name is Barry Botino and I'm an Associate Editor at Safety and Health. I'll be moderating today's event. Before we get started, I have just a few housekeeping items to share with you all today. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a Q&A session with our speakers. If you have a question, just click on the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen, type in your question, and press the send button. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin to send a question. We welcome your questions at any time during today's event. After this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you'll also receive a link in our post-event email. With that, let's introduce our presenters. With us today are two outstanding speakers, Mark Stromey and Ed Zaleski. Mark serves as a senior editor on JJ Keller's content team. He supports subjects such as workplace violence, electrical safety, fall protection, and aerial and scissor lifts. Ed is also a senior editor at JJ Keller, and he specializes in issues such as walking working surfaces, powered industrial trucks, and injury and illness record keeping. Again, we thank you all for tuning in with us today. And Mark, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right, Barry, thank you very much. And thank everybody for joining us today. Today's webcast is sponsored by JJ Keller Training. JJ Keller Training Solutions covers a broad range of topics and are available in a variety of formats, uh, training on demand, DVD, streaming video, video books, uh, to all help you meet your needs backed by regulatory experts and using the latest techniques and technology, our training solutions give your employees the proper instruction they need. So on behalf of our sponsor, uh, thanks for joining us. So uh, we're all pretty familiar with falling. We've done that uh, as children and even as adults, unfortunately. They're, they're a leading cause of fatalities and injuries in the workplace. So that is uh, why falls and preventing falls is so important. But the real problem is how do you go about that? And today's webcast, we're gonna cover a couple parts. We're gonna talk about the bullet points that you see on the screen. Uh, first of all, in order to reduce the risk of falls, it's important that you're aware of the situations that can pose fall hazards. There's three main types of hazards unsafe environment, unsafe equipment, and unsafe behavior. We're gonna discuss those, and then we're gonna move on to the three best practices or strategies to prevent falls. Those would be eliminate hazards, use passive methods like guardrails, covers, fall restraint systems, 
We're going to talk about administrative controls, uh, designated area safety monitors, warning lines. But remember, if those aren't enough to prevent the fall, you must provide workers with a personal fall arrest system and train them how to use it and how to inspect them. We're going to cover that. And then finally, we're going to talk about having a plan uh, to rescue the worker if that ever becomes necessary. So let's start out by explaining the difference between the types of falls. Now, this is important because some falls cause more severe injuries than others. We're talking about falls from the same level that results in a person falling to the ground or to the floor. This would be a slip or a trip. They have a high frequency rate, but a low injury rate typically, okay? Uh, and then we have falls from elevation where you're falling from one level to another. An example of this would be falling from a mezzanine to the ground below. Looking at this type of fall, they have a relatively low frequency rate, but a high injury severity rate. Moving on, what happens during the fall from an elevation? Now, we're talking about falling, the free fall velocity at impact from falling 12 feet is nearly 20 miles per hour. In other words, when you fall, you are going to hit that lower level in less than a second. Uh, also contrast that with a person falling four feet to, to a lower surface, you're gonna hit that lower level in way less than a second, like a half a second. And then finally, uh, if you fell from a 100 foot uh, level to a lower surface, that's gonna take 2.5 seconds uh, for you to reach that lower level. Now that we've covered the fall basics, let's get into more specifics about fall hazards. So in the beginning, I said we were going to uh, talk about falls and in order to reduce the risk of falls, it's important to be aware of the situations that can pose potential for these falls. And like I mentioned, it's unsafe environment, unsafe equipment and unsafe behavior. So. First of all, let's talk about the unsafe environment because a lot of times that's what causes the causes or creates that fall hazard. For example, if you're on an elevated surface that doesn't have appropriate guardrails, like you see in the picture there, there's a missing guardrail. There's a chance you could fall off that edge to the surface below. Other examples of an unsafe environment that could lead to a fall uh, unsafe surfaces in a walkway or an aisle where you trip, uh, missing covers or grates over holes or trip hazards, uh, extension cords in an aisle, debris in an aisle. Uh, and then it's very interesting for general industry and especially the construction industry, snow, mist, or rain uh, could cause an elevated walking, working surface to become slippery, increasing the chance you could fall off the edge of that surface to the ground below. Moving on, now we're gonna talk about unsafe equipment because that often creates the hazard. Uh, you can see in the image that the personal fall arrest harness is damaged. Now this is important because this is where you're going to train your employees to look for this type of damage. And we know some workers are kind of lax when it comes to inspecting their personal protective equipment, which, which is bad enough, but when it comes to fall protection, it's doubly important for them to, to do so. Fall protection harnesses, when they're worn, take a lot of abuse. Uh, they can be damaged fairly easy without the worker knowing it. And that's where an inspection before use is so important. Okay, what about another example? What if you're, again, working on a mezzanine and you discover a broken guardrail? Uh, that, that equipment could fail if you leaned against it and it won't provide you with the protection you needed. So again, training important, instruct your employees to look for and report any guardrails, warning lines or other fall protection equipment that are damaged or you know what, maybe just doesn't look right. And a lot of this goes unnoticed because if an employees are working in that same area all the time, they just don't notice it anymore, which is a big problem. 
But to counter that, uh, you're going to do a periodic safety inspection of, you know, the areas in your facility. Very important to do that. And when you do that inspection, it's key to have other people from outside your department do it. Maybe you have a safety committee or you have a group of workers who don't work in that part of the facility. They're going to see these problems in a new light. Uh, like I said, employees working there every day uh, are just going to become immune to it. Now, unsafe behavior. Uh, this, this is another uh, issue and it can create a, a hazard. So if you look at the image, uh, you can see that that step, the ladder's not locked into position. And of course the employee's starting to climb it. Step ladders and straight ladders uh, are used quite a bit in facilities, in general industry facilities and on construction job sites. And again, employees often take them for granted. They say things like, well, hey, I used that step ladder last week and it was fine. I'm not really sure what happened to it since. But when I used it this time, it, it collapsed and I fell and I broke my wrist. So these are the unsafe behaviors. Uh, here's another one. Uh, if you don't tighten the leg straps on your harness uh, correctly and you fall, you're going to suffer some serious injuries. Now, this type of behavior is seen when employees who typically don't wear fall arrest equipment like harnesses, they have to use them, they have to put them on. And this is where, again, I have to bring this up, effective training comes into play. You have to make sure that the worker understands to put that harness uh, on properly and tighten it so it's nice and tight, but not too tight. Uh, and then the D-ring, if that's what they're gonna be using, uh, in the back where the lanyard attaches to, that's got to be positioned right there properly in the upper back between the shoulder blades. Very important when you hook that lanyard on there. And again, make sure the legs, leg uh, straps are properly tightened. Uh, if they're too loose, uh, you can imagine what type of injuries that could occur if the worker does free fall and end up suspended for any amount of time. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Ed. Thank you, Mark. And let's move on to cover the three strategies for preventing falls. Uh, as Mark mentioned earlier, ideally you eliminate hazards. In a lot of cases, you might use those passive methods like guardrails or covers and things like that. And in some cases, you can use administrative controls. Again, like the safety monitors, warning lines, designated areas. So we're going to start with the first one on the list, looking at ways to eliminate hazards. And that's going to relate to the hierarchy of controls. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Now, this has been around for quite some time, and hopefully you're familiar with it. But it's the basic idea of controlling a hazard at its source, which is the best way to protect employees. Now, elimination and substitution, those are the most effective ways to reduce hazards, but they also tend to be the most difficult to implement into an existing process. Now, if the process is at the design or development stage, then you can look at ways to use that elimination and substitution, change how you're doing the design or how you're doing the build. That's a little simpler to implement. But for an existing process, making major changes in equipment or procedures uh, is a lot more difficult, yet it still might be the best way to eliminate a hazard. Now, if the work environment can be physically changed to prevent employee exposure to a potential hazard, <clears throat> then that hazard can be reduced, and those are engineering controls. An uh, example would be a built-in barrier, uh, an isolated space, you know, substituting a less harmful material. The idea here is that these things work independent of worker interactions. We eliminate that behavioral issue because there's just no, uh, no exposure. We've, we've blocked it out. Now, the initial cost of engineering controls can be higher than the cost of administrative controls or certainly over personal protective equipment. But over the long term, operating costs are often lower and in some, some cases can provide a cost savings because even though there's some upfront costs, the maintenance is usually a lot easier. Another one, of course, employees can change the way they do their jobs and exposure to the potential hazard is removed that way. Uh, that's reducing a hazard using a work practice control, whether you're using a processor control equipment, 
uh, how you handle wet methods, good housekeeping to eliminate those tripping hazards, things like that. Now, administrative controls do require the employer or the worker to take some kind of action to do something. Uh, this can include training workers to understand warning signage related to the hazard, or the employer reduces the time that the employee is exposed to the ha hazard. Now, administrative controls can be relatively inexpensive to uh, establish, but over the long term, they, they could be rather costly to sustain. So look at the long-term consequences here. These methods of protecting workers are also less effective. You know, it's the hierarchy here. Uh, and they may require significant effort by the affected workers to keep them running. Now, before you do all of this, of course, and look at controls, you need to do a hazard assessment. And that is an evaluation of the workplace to identify sources of hazards or potential hazards to workers. A few OSHA regulations require that particular hazard assessments be performed. Uh, one example, 1910.132, paragraph D, that's the PPE standard, requires that the employer must assess the workplace to determine if hazards are present or likely to be present that would require the use of personal protective equipment. Now, most types of hazard assessment, like a job hazard analysis or a comprehensive safety audit are not addressed in the, in the OSHA regulations, but something like a JHA, a job hazard analysis, is a good practice. Again, OSHA does not specify who must conduct or certify that hazard assessment. Anyone with the necessary skills, knowledge, and experience to identify the hazards and to select appropriate PPE for it could perform that function. And in fact, you can even designate uh, personnel to do this. Could be someone internal, or it could even be a third party if you need the expertise or don't have the time. All right, now once you've characterized the nature of the identified hazards, if necessary, you might need to put in some interim control measures, and then you need to prioritize these for control. You know, what, what are the worst risks, things like that. Once you have a good understanding of what creates the hazards and you've given the most serious and likely hazards your priority, you're ready to make recommendations to prevent them. And in general, the following actions might be taken. First, you might find a new method of doing the job that looks at analyzing different ways of working at heights or reaching a high point using the safe pos safest possible method. Another way, as we mentioned, is to change or modify the physical conditions that create the hazards. Of course, eliminating the hazards present by changing work procedures, reducing the necessity of doing a job or reducing the frequency at which it must be performed. Now, reducing frequency contributes to safety only by limiting the exposure time. So do make every effort to eliminate the hazards themselves by changing physical or environmental conditions. And of course, as needed, you provide adequate and effective personal protective equipment, PPE, to your employees which of course is at no cost to them. Now, in most cases where a worker would be exposed to a fall of four feet or more in general industry, uh, you hopefully have guardrails, and we know it's six feet for uh, fall protection in construction, but sometimes employees do need to work on top of machines or, or in other locations where, let's face it, employees don't normally go. So you can see in this image, the employer has installed several personal fall arrest systems, workers are tied off, they're wearing harnesses. Now, one thing to think about is how you're going to get them up on top of this machine. One way would be by a ladder. So the procedure might be to have the workers put on the harness and adjust it properly. They climb the ladder. And then when they get to the top of the ladder, they hook into that self-retracting lanyard onto the D-ring, and then they can step off onto the top of the machine. Now, one question that we get related to this is, well, what if the employee is only going to be up there for a couple of minutes to install a new filter? You know, OSHA takes the position that there's no safe amount of time for someone to be in an elevated area without fall protection. Now, we understand workers say, well, I'm only going to be up there a very short time or just a few minutes. But if there's a fall hazard, they do need to be wearing fall protection. Moving on for controlling hazards, you can change or modify the physical conditions that create the hazard. So how could we get rid of the hazard? Well, in the example here, one thing might be to install a ladder or put up guardrails that meet the OSHA standard. Now, if guardrails can't be attached to the machine itself, 
maybe a platform with rails could be built around the machine. I know that's a difficult one, but again, that passive protection eliminates the need for employees to hook up. Another option would be to move the equipment to be maintained closer to the floor. I've seen equipment set into pits and things like that. You can reach it, or maybe you can reach it with a stepladder and do the work while still standing on the ladder. And then of course, we wanna eliminate those hazards with the possibility of changing work procedures. As Mark mentioned, not all falls occur from heights. So here you can see a potential trip hazard. And that could be eliminated by having a work procedure that requires all extension cords and other tools be put back in their assigned place when they're done working with them. This is what we mean when we say you're relying on employees to do, take some action here. Now, this could apply to anything else, any other kind of housekeeping, like debris. You might see chunks of pallets or pieces of plastic on the floor, and those could cause slip trip hazards. Another one is reducing the necessity of doing a job, again, or the frequency that it must be performed. And again, this can reduce the exposure time and do make an effort to eliminate the hazards themselves, um, maintaining good physical environment. And as we said, the last step is to provide adequate personal protective equipment if needed, if your employees need it. PPE is kind of the last line of defense there. I'm gonna turn it back to Mark for a bit. All right, Ed, very good. So next we're gonna move on to uh, the second strategy for preventing falls and that's to use passive methods. And we're talking about the guardrails, covers, fall restraint systems. Uh, and here on the, the screen, we have an example of a passive method, uh, a specifically designed floor mat for the restaurant industry. Uh, keep in mind that if you're in industry or you're in manufacturing, there are certainly mats that work out for you, uh, but this is a very, very common mat that's used in the restaurant industry. Moving on, guardrails. We've all seen, seen these things in our facilities. Um, it's a physical barrier that's used along an unprotected or exposed side edge or other area of a walking, working surface. And, it prevents workers from falling to a lower level. Now, OSHA has very specific uh, requirements for these guardrails that they have to meet certain criteria. You can see them on the screen. They have to have a top rail and they have to have a mid rail. Importantly, that top rail is gotta be designed to withstand 200 pounds of outward or downward force in the event an average person uh, would slip maybe and fall against that or lean on it. Um, it's got to be that strong. And then the mid rail is a very important part of this because that's going to be positioned between the top rail and then that surface below it. Covers. Another important um, aspect of fall protection. Uh, it's a secured removable cap that's strong enough to prevent workers from falling into or through a hole. It's important to, to remember though, that that strength of the cover, that's determined by the environment. So if you have a skylight um, and you're gonna put a cover on that, that, that strength is going to be a lot different than uh, the one that you're using on the warehouse, warehouse floor that forklifts and other equipment is going to be driven over. So. Of course, uh, that's going to be designed uh, when, you, when you do your facility. And again, these covers have to be regularly inspected to ensure that they're secure, intact, and again, that they're not defective or damaged uh, by the forces imposed on them. Also, we're gonna talk about travel restraint systems. Um, they eliminate the possibility of a worker going over the unprotected side or edge of a working walking surface. Basically what this is, is a system that lets the worker travel just far enough to reach the edge, but not far enough to fall over it. These are very effective, uh, but they have to be made up of typical components. You're gonna have a body support, like your a, this is one of the few instances where a body belt can be used. Typically, you wouldn't even have those in your facility. Uh, you're gonna have a full body harness. Uh, you, you need an anchorage, a connector. Um, 
and then you need a lanyard. Ladder safety systems now, OSHA has come up with their new walking working surface standard. Uh, they've given us a lot of information on these ladder safety systems. What they do is they uh, eliminate or reduce the possibility of a worker falling off a fixed ladder. Uh, what does it include? What is it made up of? Well, it's got the carrier, it's got a safety sleeve, a body harness, a lanyard, and of course, connectors. The way this works is if a worker slips while using a ladder safety system, that safety sleeve is going to lock onto that carrier, prevent preventing the worker from falling any further. If they fell at all, it, it would be a very, very short distance. And the worker is going to stay there until he or she regains control of their climb or heaven forbid, they have to be rescued, but they are going to stay right there. Uh, a ladder safety system, these are important. Uh, they have to be designed so that they do not require the worker to continuously hold, push or pull any part of the system. This allows you to move up and down the fixed ladder with both hands free for climbing. It also enables the worker to perform a task um, when they get to the point where they stop climbing. And then finally, we're gonna talk about safety net systems, which are regulated by that standard you see on the screen. Now, these are horizontal or semi-horizontal barriers that use a netting system typically to stop workers uh, that have fallen before they make contact with a lower level or an obstruction. Uh, safety net systems are used uh, at unprotected sides. They're used on low slope or flat roofs and also around openings. So what you see on the screen here is OSHA's depiction of the use of a safety net system. Uh, again, it's from that uh, construction standard at 1926.502 C2. Depending on how far below that working surface the net is installed, it must extend further out from the edge. So you can see here at five feet, it's got to go out eight feet and so on. Uh, but uh, it's never installed further than necessary. So uh, never more than 30 feet below the edge of a working walking surface. You want to install that as close to possible under where you're working. And then in general industry, uh, OSHA also mentions this and 1910.29C, but it simply points back to that construction standard. Uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Ed. Thank you, Mark. All right, we're gonna move on to that third strategy for preventing falls, and that is the administrative controls. We talked about a little bit on designated areas, warning lines, and safety monitors. Some of these are in general industry. Some are specific to construction. Safety monitors, for example, are not uh, so useful in general industry, but they can be used in construction. All right, designated areas. You can see I got the regulation 1910-29 right here. So you know this is general industry. You can use designated areas as fall protection in certain situations. Now they can be used uh, if the work you're doing is at least six feet from the edge of the roof. Uh, basically a designated area allows employees who are trained to use it to perform temporary and infrequent work on a low slope roof if they're at least six feet from the edge. Now, if they're a little further back, at least 15 feet from the edge, a designated area can be used even if the work does not qualify as temporary and infrequent. And basically, this type of fall protection is provided by a warning line and stanchions. The line is that barrier. You can see in the screen, they're setting it up. It marks out an area in which uh, people are allowed to work without using additional fall protection. Uh, the designated area provides, it's a, it's a non-conventional fall protection, but it allows you to work without wearing a harness or everything because it warns you about the fall hazard at the roof edge. Now, when doing construction work, OSHA allows employers to use safety monitoring systems. That's under 1926.501 and 502. And when they're doing that, they have to follow a number of provisions. Uh, the employer has to designate a competent person to monitor the safety of other employees and ensure that the safety monitor complies with uh, various requirements. The safety monitor has to be competent to recognize fall hazards. 
The monitor has to warn employees when it appears that someone is unaware of the fall hazard or is acting in an unsafe manner. The monitor has to be on the same walking working surface and within visual sighting distance of the employee being monitored. Uh, the monitor also has to be close enough to communicate orally or verbally with the employee and the safety monitor cannot have any other responsibilities which would take that person's attention away from these monitoring duties. Um, you also do not allow mechanical equipment to be used in stores in areas where safety monitoring systems are being used. And then of course, there's personal protective equipment. Uh, again, you would provide this at no cost where it's required. As I mentioned, this is kind of the last line of defense, but when engineering controls, work practice, administrative controls are not feasible or they don't provide sufficient protection. I mean, you can use those, but maybe there's still a hazard. You reduced it, but couldn't eliminate it. Well, then you're into PPE and you need to provide that and ensure that it gets used. Now, obviously PPE is worn to minimize exposure to a variety of hazards. There's gloves, foot and eye protection, hearing protection like earmuffs or earmuff, uh, hard hats and, and even respirators. But again, this is your last line of defense. So if you're unable to eliminate fall protection hazards through other modifications of the work environment, you do need to determine the most appropriate form of personal protective equipment. And these include personal fall arrest systems, travel restraint systems, and positioning devices. We'll go through these a little bit. A personal fall arrest system is used to stop an employee in a fall from an elevated work location. Uh, these systems consist of a body harness, an anchorage, and a connector. Connectors might be a lanyard, a deceleration device, a lifeline, or some suitable combination. Now, personal fall arrest harnesses have a maximum weight capacity defined by the manufacturer. And remember that that includes the worker and any tools they're carrying. So if there's a need to use a personal fall arrest harness for someone outside the stated capacity, you're probably going to have to contact the manufacturer to request a custom harness. It's also important to note that the requirements prohibit, as Mark mentioned, prohibit using body belts as part of a personal fall arrest system. There's cases where belts can be used, but not in a fall arrest system. A positioning device is made up of equipment and connectors that when they're used with a body harness or a body belt, allows the worker to be supported on an elevated sur vertical surface, like a window wall or a windowsill or a wall. And then they can work with both hands free. And you, the idea is this is, you're, you're literally suspended there. You think of window washers or something like that. And remember that OSHA requires fall protection wherever fall hazards exist. So earlier we talked about evaluating the workplace. Well, look for hoist areas. You may have removable guardrail sections. And if those are left open, you have a problem. Holes, uh, runways or catwalks. Areas above dangerous equipment. If employees could fall onto something dangerous, they do need fall protection. Uh, there could be openings, gaps in the floor, gaps in walls, things like that. Service or assembly pits. I've all been to those oil change places where you drive over a pit. Those pits have issues too. Stairways, need railings, things like that. Fixed ladders, we talked about a little bit. Working on roofs, whether they're flat or sloped roofs. Uh, order pickers, you know, forklifts that have uh, elevate the worker to pick orders. You, you'll need a harness there usually. Scaffolding often has a railing around it, but depending on the work they're doing, they may have scaffolds. Generally, you can choose the best option for the situation, but do be aware that some hazards may have specific requirements. And I'll turn it back to Mark to talk about training. Thanks, Ed. Well, yeah, training, we know how important that is, uh, not only in fault protection, but in, in virtually everything. Even when an OSHA uh, standard doesn't require training, you know, uh, there's a chance that you have to provide at least some type of training. It's, it's a best practice. All right, so, and what about the training? Well, it's gotta be designed and conducted by a qualified person and at a minimum, we'll cover these bullets on the screen here. So how to recognize the fall hazards in your work area, how to properly minimize or eliminate those hazards, how to correctly install and set up, inspect, uh, operate, maintain, disassemble and store any fall protection 
uh, equipment that you're using, lanyards, uh, that type of thing. Uh, and then depending on your location, your training may also have to have requirements or include requirements unique to your state. Now, if you're a state plan state, uh, let's say you're located in California, Washington state, Michigan, whatever, um, you may have uh, requirements for training that go above and beyond federal OSHA. And even cities, uh, municipalities often have um, requirements. So make sure that you investigate that uh, when you're doing your fall protection training. What about retraining? Now we get this question a lot here at Keller um, and some regulations, some standards require retraining. Typically retraining is across the board with these bullets, but specifically for fall protection, when you have a change in your workplace where the training that you gave before just doesn't apply anymore. For example, what if you build an addition uh, now all of a sudden you've got a bunch of new fall hazards. Uh, so you'd have to train on that. So if you're planning a new, new addition, um, make sure you perform that hazard assessment that Ed mentioned earlier at 1910-132D uh, and you look for fall hazards and other hazards as well. Uh, and again, going back to the hierarchy of control, this is a good time to talk and think about engineering controls. Okay, when you're building an, a new facility or doing a, an addition. Also changes in your workplace systems or equipment that you're using can make previous training invalid. Let's say you install some new equipment that requires employees to get on top of it. We had a slide earlier that showed those two people up on top of that machine that were tied off and you know were properly pr protected. They could be up there for a couple of reasons. Maybe they're doing maintenance maybe they have to inspect something uh, on a routine basis. So certainly if you do put in some new equipment or whatever, uh, you gotta train your workers on how to protect themselves. In that instance, they were wearing personal fall arrest harnesses and they were tied off to that anchor point, which was actually on the ceiling. Um, and then the last uh, thing we're gonna mention is that if you see or hear about a worker who you know, demonstrates a lack of understanding or skill, uh, that is needed to protect themselves by using fall protection equipment properly. That, of course, would be another reason for retraining. Maybe they've just kind of forgot about a couple things here, and um, you certainly would do retraining then. All right, so uh, for up-to-date, consistent training content, J.J. Keller offers several online courses in this area. Uh, our fall protection for general industry outlines potential hazards and protective measures employees can take to prevent injuries on the job. But beyond fall protection, JJ Keller training delivers 24 seven access to hundreds of online courses and streaming video across multiple industries. So you can see now we have a, a poll up here. Uh, if you'd like, more information on JJ Keller's training, use the poll on your screen to select your areas of interest. And since JJ Keller training is sponsoring today's event, anyone interested in learning more about our training solutions uh, will also receive a complimentary white paper on walking, working surfaces. Now, I wanna mention we, we've been getting some questions and we'd like you to send those in. As Barry mentioned, please don't wait till the end. We are uh, ready to answer. We're going to have quite a bit of time here to take your questions and answer them. So please go ahead and send them in. And with that, uh, we're going to talk about inspections. Now, fall, protect, fall protection equipment must be inspected before each use. Uh, very, very important. Now, both construction and general industry require that. It's spelled out in construction in 1926-502-D19 and in general industry at 1910.140-C18. Of course, inspections help you identify and correct problems before they cause any harm. That's why you do them, not only because OSHA says you have to, because it's the, the right thing to do. Now, on top of that, inspections must also incur 
whenever workplace conditions have changed since the last inspection. For example, what if your body harness that you know you're you're wearing comes in contact with a hazardous chemical? It could eat away at that and weaken you know the stitching, uh, or if it's exposed to excessive heat. Um, a lot of times, people are doing maintenance or even construction work where their harnesses are you know exposed to uh, warmer temperatures than usual. So if any of that occurs, uh, you definitely want to do an inspection, even if it's during the middle of a shift. And if your harness or your lanyard, uh, heaven forbid, an employee's wearing that and they're involved in a fall, of course, um, those need to be inspected immediately. And I, we're going to talk a bit about that. And then the last bullet point you see on the slide there, um, it's not incorporated by OSHA by reference, but this ANSI ASME Z359.2 standard, it, it talks about uh, inspection by a competent person at that section 5.2, which, which like I said, it requires fall, and fall protection equipment be inspected by a competent person a minimum of every 12 months and more often if required by the manufacturer. Um, this process should be documented like everything if it's not written down, oh, should, you know, it didn't occur, right? Uh, but they don't say how to do it. So if you're gonna go out there and do this, which I highly recommend it because, uh, you know, inspecting your fall protection before every use is one thing, but the manufacturer can really do a good job of determining you know, if it's, if something's wrong with it or if it needs to be replaced. Uh, so again, document that. And then on top of that, uh, OSHA can issue a general duty clause citation under section 5A1 if they determine that you fail to maintain your PPE. So there's another reason we wanna do it. All right, so what are you gonna look for when you're doing these inspections. Here's a bunch of uh, bullet point words on the slide. Again, we're gonna look at all this stuff, you know, because, uh, you know, damage, deterioration, broken parts, uh, pay attention to anything that can affect the integrity of the equipment, you know, mildew, if you're leaving this stuff out uh, up where it's wet, you can definitely have that. Wearing a harness, over and over and over, things can wear out, especially if you have employees wearing these things every day. Uh, chemical, heat damage, I already talked about that. The material can get brittle over time. Parts can rust, mold, yep, mold can grow on it. The connections get um, wonky, uh, phrase cuts. And I talked to a safety guy a while back and he mentioned to me that he got this new brand new harness. He took it out of the packaging and. Uh, was going to put it and just place it into service. He thought, hey, you better give it a quick inspection. And he discovered a section where the stitching was coming loose. So of course he couldn't use it. He sent it back to the manufacturer with a note um, explaining his dismay that a new harness would have that issue. So just a reminder that even new PPE needs to be inspected. All right, so... What do we do um, for caring for fall protection? So you can't just let the stuff lay around in the open where it can get damaged. It's gotta be stored when not in use in a designated storage area. This should be a clean, cool, dry place, preferably a room or a section of a room where it's protected from chemicals uh, and sunlight. Sunlight is not good. Uh, long-term, it can do some damage. Explain also uh, to your employees as a training side note that if they see any fall protection equipment that's not in use and it's just laying around and not stored properly or it's on the floor or whatever, that they need to follow your company's policy about reporting it. You should have a policy that says that if fall protection gear is not uh, hung up properly or put away, and you find it as an employee, you need to report it so somebody can come out that knows what they're doing, inspect it, and if it's still okay, move it to a designated storage area because 
Sometimes if an employee finds a defect, they just take it off and they might just set it down and get a different harness. That's what we're trying to prevent somebody from putting that on and, and wearing it. All right, and then maintenance. Um, again, it's very important uh, when defects or damage are discovered, uh, report that damage, train employees to report it and remove it from service. Don't just leave it laying around. And of course, don't use it again until it's repaired or replaced. Many times it might not even be worth being uh, repaired or replaced. That's up to the manufacturer if you send it in. And if it can't be replaced or repaired, or excuse me, if it can't be repaired, it's got to be destroyed. Uh, and again, in the event personal fall protection equipment, the lanyard, the harness, whatever, is subject to impact loading, meaning if somebody falls with it, uh, that has to be re-inspected or inspected by a competent person before it's used again. And the harness uh, may be fine, but a lot of times the lanyard definitely would never be reused. Maintenance work uh, on all other forms of fall protection. Always have that done per your manufacturer's recommendations for guardrails if you wanna try to fix one that's damaged. Uh, but remember when any repair involves the structural integrity of a working walking surface, that has to be done or supervised by a qualified person and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Ed. Thank you, Mark. We're going to wrap things up a little bit and talk about uh, rescue plans. Um, <clears throat> there is a requirement for these at 1926.502. It's paragraph D20, if you're interested, uh, to provide prompt rescue of employees in the event of a fall. So we want to ensure, you know, ensure that employees can rescue themselves, but that's not always uh, an option. Also, the uh, ANSI standard listed here, Z359, that also has requirements for prompt rescue. Now, requirements include establishing verbal contact within six minutes and rescue within 15 minutes. Now, 15 minutes is the threshold expected for a healthy individual uh, for starting to get complications like blood clots. It may be less time for employees with complicating medical conditions like diabetes or high blood pressure, things like that. Uh, suspension trauma like blood, like blood clots in the legs might not be immediately obvious at the scene. So immediate medical attention should be provided too. Typically, at least an EMS emergency medical is needed at a minimum. And once you've rescued the person and got them down, it's important to keep the torso and head elevated in case any clots break free. And then it's generally off to the hospital for a checkup, at least, you know, about 100% of the time. We want to make sure they're okay. There's also some argument between a full deploy of fall protection, you know, like rip stitches or lanyard and bungee versus getting caught by fall protection, uh, you know, stepping over the edge and a self-retracting lanyard catches you. Those self-retracting lanyards are often considered superior in most situations. So there's three components to consider for your fall rescue plan. First is who performs the rescue. Consider using internal or external sources as appropriate. Now, after a fall, on-site workers must have a plan to get to and rescue the worker while waiting for outside resources to respond if that's part of your plan. So when brainstorming your rescue plan, work with your local rescue providers. Uh, these meetings can help coordinate the response between your on-site workers and your outside responders. Also consider where the rescue might need to be done. Uh, think about the fall hazards at the job site, where people are wearing these harnesses, the changes with the tasks they're doing and the environment, but do perform a, a fall hazard survey or risk assessment to help you identify where you might have to perform a rescue because that's going to affect how quickly people get there, what equipment you can get there. Uh, another important item, again, what equipment do we need to get the worker to the ground? And again, that's going to depend on what fall arrest systems you're using since that affects what rescue equipment will be needed. Uh, during rescue planning, consider where the worker could end up after falling. And someone falling straight while using a lanyard attached to an overhead point, again, those guys on the equipment we showed earlier, well, they would fall straight down, but someone attached to a horizontal lifeline could end up further away from the original fall location. There's even calculations for swing distance and things like that. Now, again, we said self-rescue can be an option, but in a lot of cases, it's just simply not going to be feasible. 
And of course, consider that the worker might be unconscious or otherwise injured. And in those cases, the equipment that you'd need can vary. It might be a ladder or it might be a scissor lift or an aerial lift of some kind. Now, after the fall, the worker is suspended in a harness and that can cause problems, including unconsciousness. Depending on the length of time the worker is suspended, they're unconscious and immobile, uh, the level of venous pooling, that's blood pooling in the legs, can result in uh, something called orthostatic intolerance and that can lead to death. A prolonged suspension from a fall arrest harness can cause that orthostatic intolerance. This is a complicated term, but if you've ever felt lightheaded after standing up too fast, you've experienced a minor version of it. Uh, it's, it's kind of that blood issue, flow issue. Research indicates that suspension in a fall arrest device can result in unconsciousness, as I mentioned, and even death in less than 30 minutes. That is the suspension trauma. So to reduce the risk, again, we want to create and implement plans to prevent that prolonged suspension. Now, OSHA does recommend a number of general practices and considerations, like rescuing the suspended workers as quickly as possible, being aware that suspended workers are at risk of that orthostatic intolerance and that suspension trauma, being aware of the signs and symptoms of orthostatic intolerance. Be aware that the condition is potentially life-threatening. Uh, suspended workers with head injuries or who are unconscious are particularly at risk. And of course, be aware of factors that increase the risk of suspension trauma. Now your rescue plan should include procedures that address the potential for those orthostatic intolerance and that suspension trauma. Those procedures should also address how the rescued worker will be handled to avoid any post-rescue injuries. Now, those procedures should include a number of things and based contingency-based actions. Um, if self-rescue is not possible or if rescue cannot be performed promptly, uh, the worker should be trained to pump his or her legs frequently to activate those muscles, reduce that venous pooling. Footholds can be used to alleviate pressure, uh, delay symptoms, and provide support for that muscle pumping. Continuous monitoring of the suspended worker for signs and symptoms of, again, orthostatic intolerance and the suspension trauma. Ensuring that the worker receives standard trauma resuscitation after the rescue. Uh, if the worker is unconscious, making sure the airway passages are open and getting first aid or medical assistance. And of course, monitoring the worker after the rescue to ensure that, and ensuring that the person's evaluated by a healthcare professional. Again, the worker should be hospitalized when appropriate. Because uh, delayed effects like kidney failure can happen in these cases. And as we said, those are very difficult to assess on the scene. So, Mark, you want to wrap us up? Absolutely, Ed. Okay, what did we do today? We talked about the three main types of hazards on safe equipment, excuse me, uh, environment equipment and behavior. We talked about best practices. You can see those there on the uh, screen. Eliminate hazards, use passive methods and use administrative controls. We talked about training workers on the use of personal fall arrest systems and how to inspect them. And then Ed did a great job talking about that rescue, which a lot of people I don't think actually think too much about that. So it's good that, um, that that's something that you're aware of at this point. All right, we're about to move into our Q&A session, but I do wanna once again mention the sponsor of today's webcast, which is JJ Keller Training. Whatever your company's needs, JJ Keller Training can help with 24-7 access to hundreds of online courses, streaming video, and training across multiple industries. So if you missed the opportunity or you joined us late, we're offering a complimentary walking, working surfaces training white paper when you request more information on JJ Keller Training. So use the poll on your screen, and we'll be happy to send that out by the end of the week. And then, uh, Barry, I think you have some things to mention, and you're going to help us go through the questions. That's right. And uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Ed, for sharing your insights with us today on this important topic. Uh, before we start the q and I want to let everyone know about our evaluation survey that you're, we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar, and your input is really important to us because it does help to improve our future webcasts. Just a reminder for all our attendees today, we've got a ton of questions that have come in, some great questions. We might not get to everyone, but don't fret. The good news is that all unanswered questions will be forwarded along to our speakers today. Now let's get to some of those questions. 
And Mark, I'm going to start with you. Uh, Andrew would like to know your thoughts on uh, the need to ensure that you don't have any keys or sharp objects in your pocket when using a fall protection harness uh, to prevent any injury. Could you discuss that a little bit for us? That was the first question that came in. So um, you know what? I don't think a lot of employees putting a harness on even think about that. Uh, and it's very important that you don't have anything in your pockets where that harness, if you did fall, could press against that. Again, in, when you're doing your training, you want to stress that because, man, that could really cause a lot of, a lot of problems. Okay, thank you for that. And Ed, over to you. Uh, we have a question from Tefera who would like to know that mentions that he's seen some uh, custom made guardrails using wood. And, and is that acceptable? Uh, that is acceptable generally. Now, I, OSHA basically just has the, uh, the guardrail requirements. So they call it a guardrail system. And I, I think a lot of us probably envision those metal tubes or, or angle iron. Uh, but anything that can meet the strength requirements, that top rail withstanding 200 pounds of force, not having rough edges, sharp edges that could catch things, uh, it has to be at least a quarter inch thick. There's a whole lot of requirements in there. But yeah, building something out of two by fours can work. Do be aware that some states may put specific requirements in there. I think Michigan OSHA talks about using two by fours, or if you're using one by lumber, uh, dimensional lumber, you, you make it in a, an L shape or a V shape so that you have a top and a side that way. So yeah, some states do have different sections, but absolutely uh, lumber wood can be used to, to build a guardrail system, again, as long as it meets all the uh, performance-based requirements for strength and so on. Hey, thank you for that. Um, Mark, Percy would like to know about, you, you mentioned top rails and mid rails, and uh, Percy asks, is 150 pounds the correct rating for a mid rail? Absolutely. Uh, it does not have to be as strong as a top rail because it's the force that's exerted on it uh, would be less because if you have a top rail of 200, so 150 is correct. Thank you very much for that answer. And our next question, Ed, I'm gonna to come to you for the next one here. Um, Joshua would like to know, uh, on a, an area with a mezzanine with gates for loading product, what are requirements for the opening, closing and securing of those gates? Oh, that's a tough one now. So OSHA kind of hasn't addressed it directly. But again, if you're if you're up on the mezzanine and you are going to open a guardrail, whether it's a swing gate or sliding or whatever, and you're exposed to a fall of four feet or more, you may need a, a fall protection system to protect you while you open and close the gate. And again, OSHA only addresses that in the sense of they're saying if you're working near that edge while it's open that you do need something. But I would want a body belt positioning system or a, a harness and fall arrest system uh, while you're opening and closing that gate because again, there's there's no minimum time. It's like, well, it just takes a few seconds, but technically you are the worker is exposed to that potential fall uh, and a simple trip slip or something. Could, could be catastrophic. So technically, while they're opening and closing the gate, I believe they do need to be wearing some other type of fall protection uh, to prevent them from going over the edge. Great, thank you. Um, Mark, the next question for you, um, Amato would like to know, uh, what are the requirements for an anchor point of a fall arrest system? Very good question. Um, and a lot of people, I don't think are really following this. You have to have an anchor point that uh, will support at least 5,000 pounds per employee and has to be designed, installed uh, per the manufacturer's instructions. This is covered in 1926 502D15. Uh, I saw the question, so I looked it up. So you want to take a look at that. What a lot of people do, I think, is just tie off to something that they think is going to prevent uh, or prevent the person when they fall from carrying that off whatever they're attaching it to, like a, like a stanchion or something. You can't do that. It's got to be 5,000 pounds, and it's got to be capable of you know, keeping that employee from jerking that harness right off of that anchor point. So look that up. It's an interesting section in the regulation. 
Great. Thank you, Mark. And we've got time for one more question today. And Ed, I'm going to come to you with this question. Uh, Robson from our audience would like to know, uh, what methods do you use for achieving, uh, would you recommend for buy-in from employees uh, regarding fall protection? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, how do you get buy-in to use the fall protection? You know, and I've talked to safety professionals who say that. They say we provide it. And the guy, you know, we, that's where we keep pushing the, you're only up there for a moment or two. Uh, and, and they don't put it on. The workers don't put it on because they know they're only, it takes longer to put it on than it does to do the task sometimes. Um, you know, as they say, we yell at them every time. Uh, it, it's tough, but to get the buy-in, they've, they've got to make it real. They've got to say, all right, well, now, if you did fall from there, what would happen? And consider the injuries and is it worth taking the time? You know, we're, we're paying you. The fact that it takes a little extra time, you're on the clock, you're getting paid for it. We, we expect you to do it. And the, the potential consequences just aren't worth the risk there to yourself because it's not just about staying safe at work. You get an injury, it's going to affect you at home, your family life, your ability to enjoy your life outside of work. And if you can get them to understand that, why it's important, you might be able to get a little more buy-in. Uh, and in the moment we have here, that's about the best I can offer quickly. Well, thank you very much for that, Ed. Uh, folks, unfortunately, we have run out of time today. We thank you all for attending today's presentation, and we would appreciate you taking just a moment of your time to share your feedback via our survey. Uh, a special thank you today goes out to our awesome presenters, Mark Stromey and Ed Zaleski, and the entire team from our sponsor over at JJ Keller. Uh, this ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Take care, everyone, and have a safe day.